MSW Media. Donald Trump is on trial this week. So what can we expect from the impeachment trial? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show and a candidate for state representative who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I get to Patty, uh, this episode is brought to us by our patrons with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron, too, on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. That's one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. Well, Patty, thank you for joining us and coming in from the cold, knocking doors. It was a little chilly tonight, but uh, it was a, it was. A, I'm so glad I was able to join you. Plus, with uh, you know, as it gets colder, people are a little suspicious about someone being on their front porch. They don't want to open the door and let the cold air in. So, I'd rather be warm and toasty here with you. Yeah, for all of you listening to this podcast in you know Miami or Rio or someplace <laughs> like that, Patty and I are so cold from being outside that we still have our coats on, uh, even though we're in here recording. It, it's that cold outside right now in Chicago. Layers are crucial. But the, this week we'll have a lot of layers to it. Ooh, look at that transition. <laughs> wow, I love it. You know, no matter w- what you're doing, whether you're running for office or you've got, you know, four kids or three jobs, you certainly have heard about the fact that the president of the United States has been impeached. He's going to be on trial this week. And I have to say, Patty, you know, we spent a lot of time covering Trump stuff. I, I know. Uh, you know, many people are like, well, you know, what are we going to hear news stories? Well, I think certainly at the end of this impeachment trial uh, there, we we will definitely uh, be switching our focus, although it seems like this trial is really not going to get to the bottom of a lot of the factual issues. No. And, and the thing is, you know, what people have struggled with for the last couple of years is that lack of justice, I think, in the, in the sense that it doesn't seem like anything matters, that nothing sticks. And, and I think that's going to continue to be the case. Indeed. Indeed. I think that's right. We're going to there's still going to be stuff to be investigated at the end of the Senate trial. People are still going to be upset and wondering how, um, you know, the the president hasn't been held accountable for various things he's done. There's going to be an election coming up. And ultimately, people are going to have to decide how to, you know, whether to get more involved in that as a way of maybe making some change or involved in local elections, as you've done. Um, but the reality of the situation is that the legal system and and the impeachment is not going to resolve that. Well, and because I'm on the doors every day, meaning I go I go to my neighbor's houses, I introduce myself throughout the district. There are quite a few people in Chicago who like what Trump has done. And they mm-hmm. think all the rest of it is worth it. They like the the unemployment rates. They like his trade uh, agreements. They one guy told me his uh, investments look good. And so you've got enough people who before you know even before the last election who liked him. And now there are numbers which on paper to a lot of people make him look mm-hmm. appealing. So yeah, well, I'm a, look. I'm a lawyer and I represent clients and 
uh, spend a lot of time around other lawyers, and there's many of them who have the same views. And I think it's certainly it's a it's a privileged position to be in. In other words, if your child, uh, you know, is not torn from you, if your rights aren't taken away, as you know, for instance, transgender Americans were had the right to serve in the military taken away from right. them. You know, if your rights aren't taken away, it's an easy position to take. But that is, you know, those are voters; their votes count, and. Uh, certainly when I talk to people who are involved in the presidential campaigns on the Democratic side, no one has any illusion about how uh, difficult, you know, difficult that uh, fight is going to be. Well, let's it's time for us to turn uh, turn to impeachment. We have a historic tri- trial coming up this week and we have two excellent guests. Our first guest is Barb McQuaid. Most of you know her because you watch MSNBC. Uh, she is an MSNBC legal analyst. But before that, she was the United States attorney uh, appointed by President Obama for the Eastern District of Michigan, which includes Detroit. She has many years of experience as a former federal prosecutor, uh, and she brings a fantastic perspective, uh, one that I I often uh, treasure and appreciate. Welcome back to the podcast, Barb. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you bet, Renato. I'm pleased to be with you. So, you know, Barb, we, we obviously are on the eve of this highly consequential historic trial, and we still have new evidence that's coming out. And I know earlier this week, a lot of us, you know, had our jaws drop when we saw all these allegations from Lev Parnas. I uh, was fortunate enough to catch you on television uh, reacting to that, and I was like, wow. As usual, my reactions to things are very similar to, to, to yours. I'm curious you know, if you can explain to us exactly, you know, what what your reaction was to hearing all of those allegations this past week. Well, they were um, certainly um, interesting and potentially explosive. He talked about everyone being in the loop, including Vice President Mike Pence and Attorney General William Barr. Uh, He said that Trump uh, was directing everything. Um, All of those allegations are very serious. But the the thing I would um, caution is that if he were a witness telling me this as a prosecutor, I would want to corroborate those statements before I used them or offered them uh, at a trial. Uh, What what we saw on television was, I think, uh, two uh, portions of maybe an approximately 40-minute interview, and I think what what I would do next is probably sit him down in a room for several days and go over every aspect of his story, you know, have him tell it from start to finish and then go back over each aspect of it. All right. Now you said this, tell me about each meeting. Tell me about when this was said. Tell me who else was present. Tell me what documents you might have that would confirm this statement. And so um, with someone like Lev Parnas who has, certainly some baggage. He's under indictment in the Southern District of New York and an incentive to say things that might be considered uh, valuable in the uh, investigation or prosecution of others. But you would want to make sure that you are confirming everything that he has to say with some other independent source. Yeah, that's so important. And I I'm glad you, you, you really explained that well, Barb. I think that it's important for listeners to keep that in mind. You know, when my initial reaction when I was hearing him make the statements that he did was that 
you know, okay, what I wanted to hear some of these with some were some pointed follow up questions. You know, you know, for instance, he says Trump knows all. You know, knew all of his movements. Well, how? How does? How do you? Th- why do you think Trump knows your movements? Like, does he have a GPS on you, or you know, is? Giuliani telling you this? Uh, who's telling you this? Like, how do you know this? Or you say Barr's part of the team? Like, why do you believe that? Who's told you that? Um, you know, have you ever spoken to him? So, you know, I really the the details matter and the basis for his knowledge matters. And so, you know, the the sort of how do you know that? And and being you know. And then, you know, once you were done with that multi-day interview, then I imagine you'd have a lot of follow-up you'd want to do and try to call in some of those other people, right? Whether it's Giuliani or Tunsoning and, you know, these other attorneys that were, um, you know, in communication and part of this effort to try to validate some of those statements that he's and assertions that he's making. Sure. I mean, that that's one of the reasons that investigators always take longer than many people think they ought to take. Uh, you can't take information at face value like that from anybody, especially somebody who has perhaps some other incentives um, and other other motivations besides altruistic. And so um, you would want to talk to all the people that he mentioned, as you said, Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tenzinger, people that he mentioned, um, you know, all the names of the people who were present for these meetings. And then you go talk to them and see if, if they tell the same story, if they tell a different story. Um, it, it may be that um, he's not telling the truth, or maybe that they are not, but you get a good feel for it after a while. If you talk to enough people and the story is confirmed or not confirmed, you can get a feel for uh, whether you think he has credibility. Yeah, I that, exactly right. And, you know, th- this is a situation that, to me, cries out for a, a Robert Mueller type figure. I think it, you know, this is the sort of thing that it would really be good to have a special counsel take a look at, given particularly these allegations about Barr. Um, have somebody who has at least a modicum of independence uh, take a look at this, uh, dig into it in the way that a professional um, investigator could and deliver, you know, I mean, what, people can criticize whatever they want about uh, about uh, Robert Mueller. I mean, certainly we got a very detailed, fulsome, factual uh, telling by by uh, by Mr. Mueller. Of course, we that won't happen here. And to me, Barb, one of the reactions I have to all of this is that, you know, it, it's one thing that we're on the eve of this impeachment trial that's unsatisfying on it is that it seems to me that we're not we really haven't gotten to the bottom of what's happening here and we're not going to really learn what ha- actually happened during the course of this trial to come we really need some further investigation that may not happen yeah you know there's this investigation that's going on in the southern district of new york and i wonder what their reaction there was to lev parnas speaking publicly no doubt um they've talked to him and if they were interested in his cooperation, they would have accepted it. Maybe they have, but you would think that if they have, they would be directing him not to be talking publicly. So uh, that's that's one potential avenue for further investigation. But yeah, I think you're right. If we don't hear from witnesses at this trial, then there are a lot of facts that will not be known. I, I do think that you know, facts are stubborn things and that they have a tendency to trickle out over time. And so the danger, if you're a Senate Republican is that if you have this trial and you very summarily acquit President Trump, then, you know, when John Bolton's book comes out or others decide to go public, the facts are going to come out. And I think those who 
voted for a quick acquittal may find themselves looking like enablers if they don't accept witnesses at the impeachment trial. Yeah, I, you know, I, one thing I will say, let, just to before we get to that point, which I think is well, I think is well put, Barb. You know, you mentioned the, you know, the potential cooperation in the Southern District, and I have to say that my sense of things is that, you know, if Mr. Parnas had information that the Southern District believed would be, you know, would relate to crime or would help them charge cases, you know, as part of their investigation, that he wouldn't be doing all this, as you suggested, which tells me one of two things. Either that the Southern District really wants to have not has wants to have nothing to do with these sort of um, potential investigations of these sorts sorts of crimes. In other words, maybe they're too messy, or they just don't think there's a provable case there, uh, or they think there's some legal risk. And I think all of that is very possible. There may be another reason why. I know there's a lot of listeners who think that you know perhaps Attorney General Barr is interfering, and I I really don't know one way or the other about that. Um, but but separate and apart from that, it's also possible that they just don't think he's credible, um, you know, just in the same way they didn't think Michael Cohen was credible. And we found out uh, after all these FOIA requests by journalists some of the reasons why they thought he wasn't. But I think that, you know, Mr. Parnas is doing all of this because he couldn't get cooperation, a cooperation deal from the Southern District of New York. And, you know, that suggests to me that we we probably aren't going to see an investigation about this from the Southern District. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Um, and the involvement of William Barr makes things very interesting. You know, we have a, a, a an allegation by Lev Parnas and nothing more at this point that um, William Barr was involved. We have the transcript of the phone call with President Trump where he directs President Zelensky in Ukraine to contact William Barr. But William Barr has always and firmly denied any involvement whatsoever. And so um, I think until I see more evidence of his involvement, I'm hesitant to believe uh, that, that he's involved in this uh, scheme in any way. But um, it does create at least the appearance of a conflict of interest, which is probably why you are suggesting a, a special counsel to investigate it. I and mean, anybody who works at the Department of Justice works for William Barr. And so there is... Um, even if not an actual conflict of interest, there's at least the appearance of a conflict that uh, people might be inclined uh, to not take seriously these allegations because of their employment at the Department of Justice. And so that could be a reason uh, for an appointment of a special counsel to investigate it. Yeah. Now, to loop back to something you suggested earlier, I mean, clearly, Barb, I think that um, there, there hopefully are going to be some political risks for Republicans with not permitting witnesses. But I have to say, you know, to me, uh, I, I have very low expectations for this upcoming trial uh, because it, this is, you know, it's not set up in the way that a criminal trial is. We don't have anyone, you know, who's an, you know, the, the who's an impartial juror here. I mean, whatever oaths they take, I don't really expect. Uh, political actors like senators to be impartial and disinterested. And this is a situation where the the people who were, a lot of people are referring to as jurors, actually set all the rules. They're the ones who decide how long this is going to be and what witnesses they're going to hear from. Yeah, in my experience, if if jurors decided to set the rules of a trial, it might last for thirty minutes, uh, so um, or ten. So I'm I'm curious what you're what you're expecting in 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 terms of of this trial coming coming up. Well, yeah, at the moment, I, I have to agree with you. It does not appear that we're going to see witnesses. Republicans control uh, the rules, and 
uh, we would have to have a majority vote in favor of witnesses. At the moment, there are 53 Republicans and um, no indication that uh, at least three of them are going to uh, defect from the ranks. Uh, I guess maybe it would even take a fourth, right? Uh, I don't know what happens in the event of a 50-50 tie. That's sort of unclear. Um, But it it is, to me, sort of outrageous that you have this trial without witnesses. Uh, The Bill Clinton trial had witnesses, and Mitch McConnell has promised to revisit the question of witnesses mid-trial, although it seems by that point um, the uh, train has left the station and he can do whatever he has the votes to do. But one thing that's important to remember is the reason that we haven't heard from witnesses like John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney and Mike Pompeo is because President Trump blocked them. He asserted absolute immunity from even having to appear to answer questions at the impeachment inquiry stage. And, you know, there are some who are saying that uh, the evidence could be limited to that which was presented at that stage and that the uh, House Democrats rush things through by not conducting a full investigation and then pursuing legal challenges to Trump's assertions of absolute immunity and executive privilege. But I think if they were to try to uh, fight those battles in court, we would get many months down the road and likely well past the November election. And of course, the November election is uh, what what this is all about. You know, concerns that President Trump's efforts, if unchecked, Uh, are designed to interfere with that election. And so there's some urgency to getting this question before the Senate at a trial. And so the absence of witnesses really is is Trump's own doing. And and now he stands to benefit from from that strategy. So if there are no witnesses, what would they actually do during the trial then? That's from one of our listeners. Yeah, the um, plan to date is that there would be... um, opening arguments by the House managers and then a response by President Trump's lawyers, and then an opportunity for senators to ask questions. That's what they currently have scheduled out. Now, if they decide not to call witnesses, they could simply have a vote on uh, removal or acquittal at the conclusion of that presentation and those questions um, instead of witnesses, or they uh, have reserved the right to consider the idea of, of calling witnesses at that point. And then if, with the witnesses, then, what's to stop them from testifying only then to claim executive privilege during their testimony? Yeah, Patty, that's so interesting because um, it's really unclear whether the courts could get involved in that situation. And so if the Senate were to, say, call a John Bolton and President Trump wanted to assert executive privilege, now Bolton said he would come testify, but it's the president's privilege, and if he wanted to assert it, I think he could potentially stop John Bolton from testifying. Then the question goes to John Roberts, the chief justice, as the presiding official. Uh, He could make a decision on that. But I think under the rules of the impeachment trial, the Senate could overrule that decision. Now, if they've voted for the witnesses in the first place, presumably they would favor witnesses. And so they could compel uh, one of these executive branch witnesses to testify. The question then is, does President Trump try to run to court, to a federal district court, to get a rid of mandamus or some other order to block it? And would the courts agree to hear it? Or would they say this is a political question and the Constitution gives the Senate the sole power to try impeachments? I think the latter would be the case. But in the meantime, President Trump could probably stall some time uh, before they got to that point. And then 
if the courts should all say you must come testify, what if he just doesn't? Do they then get rid of mandamus and get U.S. marshals to drag him there or jail him until he does? I, I am hopeful it doesn't come to that and that uh, wiser and cooler minds prevail to work this out so that we don't have a, a circus-like spectacle. But there are a lot of unanswered questions about what that could look like if people do decide to assert privileges. So then would you get the worst if of both worlds the GOP claims the trial had witnesses, but nothing was actually said? (laughs) (laughs) You you, you could get that. I mean, you know, President Trump has made it part of his career to be a disruptor. Um, It wouldn't surprise me to see him go to the mat and take very aggressive positions and sort of dare other branches of government uh, to to behave nicely. I I don't think he's... uh, He's ever f- thought behaving nicely is in his best interest. He, he refers to himself as a, a counterpuncher, that he fights back, that he defends himself. And so I think we could find ourselves in that scenario. Um, now, I suppose if, if there was that mandamus and the inherent contempt power, that could mean that uh, people could be jailed until they testify. Um, maybe they will uh, uh, follow through and, uh, and stay there. Although John Bolton in light of his public statement, has suggested that if subpoenaed, and as long as there's not an order prohibiting him, I think he would come in and testify. Yeah, I have to say, though, I don't don't expect to actually have him there or any new witnesses. I mean, everything seems to point to, from what I could see, you know, the Republicans having a few witnesses, perhaps the people we've already heard from, come back. Um, and is, is sort of, and then just sort of you know having their vote and calling it a day. I mean, it really looks like Republicans are looking for an excuse to to vote not to remove more than they're looking to search for truth. And you know, I, I don't. I at least that's that's what I expect from what I've seen so far. It, it, that, that seems right to me. And you know, I've also thought about this, Renato, and I'm curious about your your thoughts about this. Um, you know, as a prosecutor. You would never call a witness um, and ask them questions to which you do not know the answer, right? You've always had a chance to interview them in advance or you've put them in the grand jury. You have some good indication of what they're going to say. If you were to put a John Bolton or a Mick Mulvaney uh, or a Mike Pompeo in there cold and ask them questions, um, it's likely that they would at least have an incentive to tell a story that is helpful to President Trump. Would you call them? Would you put them on? It's a great question. And, you know, here's the answer. The only time I would do it is if I had no hope of winning otherwise. And I think that's why Democrats are agitating so much. In other words, (laughs) they know Republicans have the votes now, so you might as well just throw a Hail Mary and see. But, yeah, Yeah. I think that none of these people are going to go out of their way to help Democrats. I mean, John Bolton maybe has some axe to grind with Trump, but he's like a right-wing Republican who's— been a successful Republican operative for years. I don't know why he'd want to make himself some sort of pariah amongst the Republicans. And, you know, he's probably trying to sell his book. And then Pompeo is going to run for the Senate or whatever he's going to do. I mean, or whatever his future aspirations are. I mean, these are all people. Mick Mulvaney is a Trump loyalist. So, yeah, these people are going to say whatever self-serving stuff they, they, they're going to say. And, uh, yeah, I think for the most part, it'll probably help Trump. But, you know, right now Democrats have the have, uh, don't have the votes, uh, so they're willing to try and throw hail marys. And Republicans are trying to do what I have done before when I've tried cases, and I think I'm winning. I want to get it over with. Uh, if I, right. I'm the, 
And the defense side, if I'm winning, I'm not calling any witnesses. My last trial, I was going to win. So I just forget. I know I promised my client's going to testify. Sorry, he's not. No one's, we're not. I had eight people on my defense list. We're not calling anybody because we're, you know, that that's just what you do when you think you have the have the the win. And I think that's where what Republicans see right now. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I think that the, there's always that strategy of don't don't snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Know when to sit down and shut up. And it seems like Republicans are in that that posture right now. Yeah. I mean, I look, I have a lot of critical things to say about Mitch McConnell. His His ability to count votes is one that I'm not going to criticize. So I think that's what's going on here. Um, but, you know, look, it, some of this stuff is hard. It's it's clearly hard for a lot of them to justify this with a straight face. I mean, I watched uh, Senator Shelby's performance on Meet the Press today, and he was barely able to make a sentence, weave a sentence together about why he, you know, he, it looked like, you know, he was on the path to voting for, to, you know, to acquit the president. And I think that's just the reality of, of where we're at. Um, and I think this ultimately may make this entire process very unsatisfying for everyone. I mean, it'll certainly be unsatisfying for Democrats, but I think it may also be unsatisfying for Trump because he's still going, he, no one is going to view this as an acquittal other than his loyalists and supporters. Yeah, but, you know, I think there's still importance in going through the process. You've seen trials before where surprises occur. And I think ultimately, uh, it is the court of public opinion that matters. And so um, right now, I know there's polling that says the majority of voters would like to see witnesses appear. At some point, you could imagine that uh, the Senate uh, feels sufficient pressure from their constituents to call witnesses, or they may pay a political price if they're seen as uh, enabling President Trump to uh, sort of get away with one. So I think it all matters, and I think uh, the way the trial plays out matters. And, and we'll see what consequences those carry perhaps down the road when the election comes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think in many ways that's what this is really all about. This is about the upcoming election. You know, That's a reason that Democrats have been highlighting uh, Trump's conduct, even though certainly when I've talked to members of Congress privately, they all— thought that the result wasn't going to be that, you know, there would not be the votes to remove. And Republicans, you know, Lisa Murkowski made this week, a, I thought, a revealing comment when she mentioned that she wanted an, a, pro, a process that appeared fair. And I think they want a process that they can go back to their voters and say had witnesses and so on and so forth. And, you know, they'll go through the motions, I think, uh, at least to have some level of process. And I think that process is important. I agree with you. I think I'm a process sort of person, uh, but, um, you know, I think everyone should understand that the purpose there may be to create a perception that there was a fair trial. Uh, Whether it's actually fair is a different story. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. Wow. Well, Barb, this has been fantastic. I I always uh, find myself agreeing with so much of what you have to say. Uh, It will come to no surprise to anyone that I think you're very wise. So I learn (laughs) a lot from you, and I really appreciate your perspective all the time. Yeah, same to you, Renato. I enjoy listening to the podcast. Patty, appreciate what you do, and uh, uh, appreciate the chance to have the conversation. Thank you so much. Now let's bring in Professor Frank Bowman. Uh, He is the Floyd R. Gibson Endowed Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law. Uh, He has written the book on impeachment, so to speak. Uh, He has literally um, written a book 
outlining the history of impeachment, which we'll talk um, a little bit about uh, in a bit. Uh, that's from Cambridge University Press. Uh, and then before uh, he became a professor. He spent years as a trial attorney in the in the uh, criminal division of the of the Justice Department. Uh, he also was a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida. So he's got experience as a prosecutor before, uh, you know, studying so much about impeachment and writing a book about that. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Bowman. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. We are literally on the eve of the Senate trial of. Uh, President Trump, you know, for folks who are listening, what can they be expecting in the weeks ahead? Is you know, can you tell us as somebody who's, you know, who's studied and written a book on impeachment? Well, I think the procedural details of what's going to happen are still a little uncertain, in that we haven't yet seen the resolution that. Uh, Majority Leader McConnell is apparently going to present for the Senate's consideration that will govern what's going to happen. But apparently it will include provision for um, some period of opening statements by uh, the House managers and uh, the president's lawyers, followed by some period of questions from the senators, understanding, of course, that these questions have to be asked in writing, submitted in writing to the chief justice who is presiding, which will make it somewhat less than riveting television. Um, uh, Probably um, after that point, there will be an opportunity for various motions. Um, Those might include a motion to dismiss, essentially, on the evidence or discussions held to that point. Uh, almost certainly will include some motions to uh, issue subpoenas or compel the attendance of other witnesses or bring forward other evidence. Uh, We just don't know how those motions will turn out because there appears to be at least some uncertainty in the Republican caucus uh, about the opinions of three or four of the Republican senators. And if four of them were to join all the Democrats and uh, independents, that would allow the issuance of those subpoenas. One thing that we've heard a lot about um, from certain Republican senators is that they want to follow the Clinton model. In other words, the model of how the the Senate trial of President Bill Clinton um, took place in 1998. Can you tell us or explain to us what that model is? Well, it's basically what I just described, I mean, in broad outlines. Um, But there's a great difference, of course, between what happened in the Clinton case and the reason they adopted those particular procedures and the situation that we now have. Um, In Clinton, when it came to the Senate, effectively what they had was really a trial on what amounted to stipulated facts. Uh, There really was no question about what Mr. Clinton had done. Uh, Frankly, there wasn't much question even when it got to the House um, Judiciary Committee in the first place, and there certainly wasn't any question by the time uh, the House deliberations were concluded. Um, he'd had, uh, you know, extramarital uh, sexual relations with a with a, an intern and lied about it. And the only real question to be presented to the Senate was the constitutional consequence of that. Was that a high crime and misdemeanor? Um, now, even given the fact that the facts were utterly undisputed, really. Um, the Senate still left open the possibility of maybe holding hearings from some live witnesses anyway. The compromise they actually arrived at was they decided not to actually have a whole Senate here from live witnesses, but rather they would hold three additional depositions 
Um, three of those deputies being of Monica Lewinsky, I think Betty Curry, the president's secretary, and some other White House aide. All people who, by the way, had already testified before. Um, but the point here is that when the matter got to Clinton, when the Clinton matter got to the Senate, uh, it was really a, a trial and stipulated facts. Everybody knew what was going on. And, and there were no witnesses who had not already been heard from. The obvious difference here is that we have a number of witnesses who plainly haven't been heard from. Um, we have John Bolton, we have Mick Mulvaney, we have other uh, White House uh, witnesses. And what's more, we have uh, an almost complete absence of relevant documents. The, the White House has pro provided exactly zero documents uh, in response to House requests. Um, the House got some documents, but only because individual witnesses uh, came forward and supplied them. They got none from the administration. So we have a number of witnesses who plainly could offer relevant testimony, testimony on the you know, direct question of did President Trump uh, order aid to be withheld from uh, Ukraine and, and conditioned upon you know, some investigation or announcement of an investigation of, of Burisma and Biden uh, and the crowd strike conspiracy theory. Um, there are people who know about that, know exactly what President Trump did or didn't do, said or didn't say, and those people haven't testified so far. Um, so to analogize the Clinton rules to the current ones is really a false comparison. I hear exactly what you're saying, and I think you're right uh, that these two factual situations are very different. Um, but uh, it, it is nonetheless uh, good for, I think, people to understand um, what the shorthand means. And I think um, from my perspective, and I'm curious if you agree, now you are, you know, just, and we talked a little bit, I talked a little bit about this earlier when I was introducing you, but you're not just a a professor now. Of course, you were a trial attorney in the criminal division. You also um, were a federal prosecutor, um, you know, at a U.S. attorney's office as well. So you have experience doing real uh, trials. It's you know, the Senate trial to me is not a very good instrument for finding truth. Period, because you don't really have the judges. You know, the, the senators are judges, not really just jurors. They're certainly not. Um, impartial in any way, even if, you know, regardless of whatever oath they're going to take, they're political actors. Uh, and they're not, um, you know, it, it, there's no sort of um, uh, procedure that would, um, that would, uh, you know, that would lend itself towards the discovery of truth. I mean, it doesn't seem to me like an institution that's set up to do so. I mean, you know, even if uh, everyone there was interested in doing it, I, do you do you feel like you know that the, that if the Senate was oriented differently, it might be able to reach that you know reach the truth nonetheless, despite all of the kind of institutional institutional hurdles in in doing so. Well, there are a couple of things to be said. I mean, one, it is certainly possible to have Senate impeachment trials that are at least designed in much the same way that regular trials are, um, to uh, get, to the, get to the truth using some of the same mechanisms. If there, there are and have been you know, trials in the Senate of judges uh, and others uh, that follow sort of the normal trial model in which you had witnesses um, testify, cross-examination, and so forth. And indeed, the presidential impeachment of Andrew Johnson had lots of witnesses. 
Um, and it looked very much like a real trial with uh, you know, direct examination, cross-examination, introduction of evidence, and so forth and so on. Um, so when we talk about trials as a way of discovering truth, there, there are a couple of parts to that. One is the procedures that we use, I mean, the, the kinds of adversarial procedures that we lawyers have come to think of as being useful to um, bring truth to light. Um, and certainly the Senate has in the past used more of those kinds of processes, and they could elect to do here, but they plainly decided not to, or at least the Republican majority has. Now, the other um, thing that I think you're talking about critically is the nature of the fact finder. And what it makes um, a Senate trial very different than any uh, trial in regular courts is uh, the nature of that fact finder. If you think about what happens in a regular court, um, jurors come in, they sit down, um, the judge tells them, ladies and gentlemen, let's say this is a burglary case. Uh, you're going to, the, the law of burglary is such and such, and in order uh, for you to arrive at a conviction, uh, the, you have to conclude the prosecution has proven the following facts, A, B, C, D, and E. And all we really ask the jury to do, once all the evidence is in, is to go back into a room, talk with each other, and decide whether the prosecution proved A, B, C, D, and E. Um, they are not asked. <laughs> the next question um, and oh, by the way, once you decided facts A, B, C, D, and A, E, tell us if you think it matters. Tell if you think tell us if you think there even ought to be a crime of burglary. Tell us if you think this particular burglary is sufficiently important um, that we ought to use the burglary statute here. We of course don't do that with juries. That's not their job. But that's essentially what we ask of senators. We ask them not only to determine what the facts are, but then we ask them to decide if it matters if the facts actually amount to um, a, an impeachable offense, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And what's more, you know, the other thing that, that the jury can't do uh, in a regular trial is they can't tell the judge what the rules are going to be. And in this trial, the Senate can tell the judge what the rules are going to be. If there's an objection on grounds of uh, you know, evidence, on grounds of relevance, or some other reason, um, if there's an effort to obtain evidence, and the judge here, Judge, Chief Justice Roberts, makes a provisional ruling one way, if any senator objects, um, the matter is put to a vote of the whole Senate, and a vote of 51 senators overrules, overrules the Chief Justice. So uh, there, the, the senators are the judge of the facts, the rules under which the facts are going to be obtained, and they're the final judges on the law. Um, now, that seems very odd. And it may seem, you know, not the way to obtain truth in some large sense. On the other hand, it's plainly the way it was designed. And it's plainly because impeachments have been like this since they were first invented by the British Parliament in 1376. They were designed always as essentially political exercises. Um, Fact-based, to be sure, um, but the thing that we always ask the upper house to determine is whether the conduct proven in front of you is of sufficient seriousness that this officer ought to be removed. And that's inevitably a political judgment. Um, and we, you know, the framers set it up that way and it remains that way today. Yeah, it is um, an interesting thing having, you know, people who in some sense are jurors also having all of these other roles. I know if when I try cases, if the jury got to decide the rules, I think that they would have a you know thirty minute trial 
uh, we would they would want to get out there out of there as soon as possible. Let's just have uh, let's get this whole thing wrapped up in an hour. Uh, so and then go home. I, I think that, you know, the reality is, you know, the interests of the senators um, are not always going to be the interests of potentially, you know, the public in terms of figuring out what happened and, and having a result that's um, that, um, you know, provides the public with information about what occurred and uh, achieves a result that is consistent with potentially what the public's judgment is in the matter. I think the reality is that, you know, senators have their own agenda. And as you point out, I think it's a purely political judgment. Um, and I think the reason that I think this is worth highlighting is I, I we've seen a lot of discussion lately um, uh, where people, I think, are expecting that process to be something more than what it is. Um, and I think while it has an element of fact-finding, to me, from my perspective, I think we always have to keep in mind that we're dealing with, you know, 100 people who are, be- for, for better or for worse, political leaders. But the other thing to be added, though, I think there is another difference here with the, the current proceeding. Whatever the Senate may have done in the past, I think we can say that, even first of all, impeachments of presidents are really the most controversial and the ones in which politics play the largest role for obvious reasons. Um, But in all three of the previous cases in which there's been a serious effort to impeach a president, I do think we can say that the Senate as a whole, not every member, but as a whole, had a genuine commitment to at least determining what the facts were before deciding what the political consequence should be. Um, you know, they had a full trial in Johnson, in Nixon, um, you know, in the House of Representatives. Um, you know, the, the, the Republicans, by and large, uh, cooperated with the Democratic majority in ensuring that, you know, evidence was secured from the White House that was necessary to determine what, what President Nixon had done. In the Clinton case, uh, Democrats also uh, went along. The, the vote on, on you know how to proceed in the Senate trial was a hundred to nothing, um, and there was no suggestion, even by the Democratic you know, it, you know co-religionists or co-party members of President Clinton, there was no suggestion that somehow or other we shouldn't determine what the facts are. Um, they insisted that the facts be found. They arrived at somewhat different judgments, by and large, than most of their Republican colleagues about the meaning of those facts, but there was never a suggestion that the facts didn't matter. What we have here is something quite new in American history. A Senate, uh, which is you know, controlled by a party, which apparently, uh, on balance, is determined not uh, to insist that the facts uh, be brought forward. And that's a novelty. And a really dangerous one. Yeah, I, it seems to me that the that that Republicans realize that the facts are not good for President Trump, and so they want to stay as far away from those facts as possible. And that is what I glean from the seven-page submission by Trump's team, and you comparing that to the hundred and eleven-page submission from the House managers, right, on prosecuting the case. The reality is this, the House managers want to get into the facts because I think the facts very clearly establish uh, a violation. And there's really um, no way to grapple with that or to contest that on the, on, the, on the Republican side other than to just say you don't care or you don't think it's impeachable. 
And so Republicans are looking for an easy way out. And it seems like one way in which they may have found that is this argument that Dershowitz uh, has been making. And I know you have written stuff uh, about that. You've written your opinion about that. Um, Essentially, Dershowitz's argument appears to be to me that, well, because there isn't a a crime as a le- from the United States Code, from the federal statute books, that's alleged here, then therefore there's no impeachable offense, which to me runs counter to, you know, constitutional history and, and text. Uh, I, I'm curious, um, you know, what your take is on, on that, uh, on that argument. It's absolute nonsense. Um, there is absolutely no support for it. Um, it there's no there was no support for it in British constitutional history, uh, you know, on which we based our impeachment practice and from which we actually uh, adopted the phrase "high crimes and misdemeanors." There's no support for it in uh, American impeachment practice before the Constitution was adopted. Um, it turns out that there were actually impeachments in the American states between 1776 and 1787. There were impeachments in the American colonies. Um, there's no support for it uh, in, anywhere in, uh, in anything that's said during uh, the, the, um, uh, the debate in Philadelphia in 1787 about, uh, about the constitutional text. There's no support for it uh, really in anything that's happened since. I mean, I could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I'll just give you the the simplest illustration. Um, When the framers were trying to decide what, what, first of all, whether to define impeachable conduct at all, and if so, how to define it, um, the debate was winding down in that summer, and, and they'd gotten to September of 1787, and they decided they were going to have impeachment, and at that point, the, the operative draft said that impeachable offenses were going to be limited to treason and bribery. And George Mason got up um, and he said, "No, that's not that's not broad enough. That's not that's not good enough. Um, you know that that's he he said among other things, treason um, wouldn't cover Hastings' offenses. Um, and people who's Hastings." Well, it turns out that there was uh, there was a British official who was actually the Governor General of Bengal, what we would now refer to as India, um, who had, who was being impeached in the British Parliament that very summer. He'd just been impeached a few weeks before, um, and it, the charges against Hastings, uh, almost none of them, if any, were criminal. Um, what they were were charges of abuse of power. Uh, in fact, it's so clear that they weren't criminal that even the guy who was his principal prosecutor, uh, Edmund Burke, um, very famous uh, you know, British parliamentarian and, and, and writer and actually supporter of the American Revolution, said uh, when he was describing the charges that, in fact, they weren't, they weren't criminal. Um, they were offenses you know, against broader principles, and that's why they were high crimes and misdemeanors. So the American framers and, and Mason George Mason knew perfectly well that that, uh, that Hastings' impeachment was going on. He knew the nature of, of, of the charges against Hastings. And what he was saying when he stood up is, look, treason and bribery won't do it because they won't cover the kinds of offenses that, that are being charged against Hastings over in, in England right now. So we need something broader. 
Um, first, they, they advanced maladministration, and that was rejected. But the, the phrase they settled on was high crimes and misdemeanors. And it's perfectly plain um, that high crimes and misdemeanors covered all sorts of stuff that was not criminal. Another example of that was in 1774 uh, in Massachusetts, the colonists had actually impeached a British judge, uh, a colonial judge, um, for, for the offense of agreeing to, to have his salary paid by the crown instead of by the colonial legislature. So the, the legislature impeached him, the colonial legislature impeached him um, for, this, for this grave sin of taking a, a, a royal salary. They called it tantamount to, to taking a bribe. And you know what they called that, his offense in the Articles of Impeachment? High crimes and misdemeanors. And the people who did that, um, the people who did that in that Massachusetts um, assembly, many of them um, were people you'd know. Uh, Sam Adams, um, John Hancock, um, lesser, lesser lights who actually made their way to being representatives of Massachusetts at the Constitutional Convention. John Adams actually came up with the idea uh, of impeaching this judge. And the point is that when they got to Philadelphia, Americans were quite familiar with this phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. They were quite familiar with the fact that throughout 400 years or so of British history, it had been used to cover all sorts of behavior, um, only some of it criminal. And the framers adopted that, that phrase Knowing all of those things, um, you know, it's also true that you know, the people subsequent to 1787, a fair number of American officials have been have been impeached for um, for behavior that was not criminal. The very first successful impeachment was of a judge named John Pickering, who was basically impeached for being drunk and probably insane, neither of which were criminal. Um, Lots of other folks have been impeached for some similar grounds. Um, even though they're actually, I say lots, there aren't a lot of federal impeachments, but a number have. Um, and we know, for example, um, that uh, in Richard Nixon's case, um, you know, although he plainly did do some things that could have been charged as crimes, um, the articles of impeachment were very careful uh, not to make any reference to, spe- to specific uh, criminal offenses. Same was true even with respect to to, uh, to Bill Clinton. Um, so it is it's absolutely clear that um, uh, in, impeachment does not require proof of a crime. Uh, Mr. Dershowitz is just flat wrong. Um, there is virtually no one in 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 the American legal academy, no and, and no respectable thinker who's a lawyer or a judge who agrees with, agrees with him. It's, he's just making it up. Yeah, I I think that's clear. In fact, uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, said, some, said as much back in 1998 uh, about whether or not uh, in, you know, an, an impeachment would have to be for a criminal offense or not. So I think, you know, he's saying what, whatever he thinks is in his client's interest now, but by Pretending he's neutral about the about the subject, or that he's pontificating as some sort of professor, um, you know, he's trying to turn some sophistry into more than it really is. I I do um, want to hit another topic though, because I know we we have a limited amount of time today, and I've had uh, there's a number of listeners. Uh, Deb um, has asked about this, and and um, 
and uh, Rebecca have both asked about the role of Chief Justice Roberts. And I think, you know, from from my perspective, uh, Professor, there's been some disinformation uh, kind of spread about this. I know um, Glenn Kirshner, who's on MSNBC and others, have been suggesting that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is going to take some active role overruling the senators and, um, and you know, it, it, it sort of, you know, forcing more witnesses to be heard or disqualifying particular senators from, from, uh, from voting or considering uh, or taking a part in the trial. Uh, I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Well, let's take, you know, take those various suggestions uh, sort of in reverse order. Uh, the notion that uh, the Chief Justice or, frankly, anybody else could disqualify a senator from uh, participating in this trial is simply bunk. Um, there's no provision for such a thing. And if you think about it, it would be kind of actually kind of crazy. On what ground would you do it and who would make the decision? Um, moreover, think about the consequences of it. To disqualify a senator on grounds of bias or some other reason now, isn't just removing one person from the sort of the Senate jury pool. It's essentially saying that one half of the representation of an American state doesn't get to participate in the decision about whether or not to remove the president. That's just not happening. And certainly the Chief Justice has no authority to do that, nor for that matter does the Senate itself. Um, you know, other suggestions that somehow or other the, the Chief Justice can overrule. Uh, you know, the, the senators or determine on his own that, that this, that, or the other thing can happen. Just not true. Um, uh, the, the Senate is in control of this process. The Constitution says the Senate shall have the sole power to try impeachments. And sole pretty much means sole. Um, now, it's true that the Constitution also says uh, that the Chief Justice shall preside but only in a very special case, only in impeachments where the president, him or herself, is the defendant. Because in every other case, the presiding officer would either be the vice president of the United States, who, as many people forget, uh, is actually the president of the Senate and can preside when he or she wishes to, um, uh, or if the vice president doesn't want to come on down, the president pro tem does the presiding. Uh, we put the chief justice in primarily, I mean, in presidential cases, primarily because to allow the vice president to preside in a case where if the president is convicted, the vice president gets his job would be an obvious conflict of interest. And that's the primary reason that the chief justice is there. When there, the chief justice has no more authority than any other presiding officer of the Senate. Um, and that means that he, under the rules passed by the standing rules of the Senate passed in 1986, and which are still operative today, he can make provisional rulings on quite a lot of things, you know, whether to issue subpoenas, whether to issue writs and mandates, and whether to, you know, whether to admit or not admit evidence. He can make provisional rulings on all of those things. But in every single case, if a senator objects to his, to his ruling, and the matter goes to a vote of the entire Senate, and he can be overruled by 51 senators, period, full stop. Um, and, there, and moreover, there's no, I think there's no indication whatsoever that Chief Justice Roberts is going to have any personal disposition um, to thrust himself aggressively into the middle of this very poisonous dispute. Now, um, Chief Justice Salmon Chase took a somewhat different view back in the uh, Andrew Johnson impeachment in 1868, but even he, um, he tried to be a little more assertive, but it kind of backfired on him um, ultimately. 
But in any case, in the current environment, and given Chief Justice Roberts' interest in, I think, promoting the, you know, the the institutional integrity and, and, and image for impartiality of the Supreme Court over which he presides, he is going to have, I think, little inclination to, to thrust himself into into partisan disputes. Now, if he's asked to rule on things, I think he'll do it. Um, and there might be circumstances, depending on how questions are posed, in which he could be called upon to cast a, a tie-breaking vote if a vote were 50-50 on certain items, although it's not even clear he would do that. I think it would depend on how the, what the issue was, how the question was posed, and so forth and so on. Um, but fundamentally, I think he is going to try to um, to preside as impartially as he can. I think he's going to consult very uh, closely with the parliamentarian of the Senate, who's really going to be the person who knows the rules, not him. Um, and he is going to uh, be as even-handed as he humanly can and try to get out of this thing as unscathed as he as he can manage, both in terms of his own reputation and that of the court. Yeah, I think just like Chief Justice Rehnquist, he will try to do as little as possible, try not to be, to get caught up in the... Um, in the uh, you know partisan back and forth uh, that there will be in the Senate. Well, Professor Bowman, thank you very much for joining us. I want to remind our, our readers again, uh, the book that uh, Professor Bowman wrote on this subject, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, in a History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. It's uh, published by Cambridge University Press. You can get it at impeachableoffenses.net. Uh, so if you liked hearing what Professor Bowman had to say, you'll like reading that book even more. Thank you so much, Professor. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 